Ephesians chapter 4 in your Bible today. I hope you brought it with you to church. Ephesians chapter number 4, as soon as you find it. Stand with me, if you will, please, and we'll read a passage. And um, I think I've decided to back up one verse since we put the screen to, uh, the PowerPoint together. So in chapter 4 and verse 29, let's begin. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Just stop there and think about our culture today. Corrupt communication, profanity, filthy talk, dirty jokes. You think about what happened this week in reference to our president. Uh, unbelievable the level of uh, discourse, how far it's fallen in our country today. It's incredible. I never thought I'd see that. The Bible specifically says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying. In other words, our words should build up people. Edify, edifice, building. We should build up people. And that it may minister grace unto the hearers. When people converse with us, there ought to be a spirit of grace. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption, the coming of Christ. And then the passage I'm going to deal with today, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking, back to that. Let all that be put away from you along with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You may be seated. The subject today is two names for a Christian. Maybe I should say two other names for a Christian. We use the term Christian often. We use believer. We have various terms by which we identify those who are followers of Christ. There's another one. But I want to show you two that you may not have thought about. Look in verse number 32. You may want to take your pen or pencil and circle two words in verse 32 because they are two alternative names, if you will, for a Christian. And the first one is forgiving, forgiving. A Christian is a person who is forgiving. And a little further down, it talks about forgiven. So we have two alternative names for Christians. A Christian is a person who is forgiven. A Christian is a person who is forgiving. Forgiven and forgiving. That is the message today. Let's talk about the name of Christians. We are the forgiven. We are forgiven by God. What does it mean to forgive? If you look up the word forgive in the lexicons and dictionaries and, and all that, do a little study of the word forgive. Here's what you will learn. 
The word means to cancel a debt. You owe me something, and I cancel that out. It means to no longer require payment. I no longer expect anything from you. It means also, there's another sense in which it it is used, it means to lift a load. So we picture in our mind, here is a person, and on his back is a heavy, heavy sack. It weighs 100, 150 pounds. He's walking around with that load. He is burdened. He is really struggling to carry that load all the time. And then one day, someone comes and takes that load from his back and relieves him of that weight. They cancel that debt. They lift that load. They no longer require that payment be made. That's forgiveness. Now, God, we know our Creator, gave His law. We know that we, mankind, didn't live very long on this planet until we broke that law. And the Bible says the transgression of the law is sin. The breaking of God's law is, by definition, sin. So the Bible then says all of us have sinned and come short of God's glory. Now, think with me. Listen, I don't want to to lose you early on here, and you'll need to think through with me. So... We have broken God's law. In breaking God's law, we have incurred a debt. We owe God something because we have violated his principles, his law. We're debtors to God to pay off what we have done against him. The problem, again, is we have no means to pay. We are bankrupt. We have no coin of the realm, as it were, whereby we can pay the Lord the debt that we owe him. And so we have Christianity. We have the model of God's forgiveness, and it's given to us right here. Specifically, it's given in verse 32. This is the biblical model for our forgiveness. This is how God forgave us. It says, God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. God, because Jesus Christ did something on our behalf, is now free to forgive us of the debt that we owe him. God required payment, and Jesus made the payment. You see, God couldn't just cancel our debt and say, You go on and live your life, I'm just going to forgive you. God doesn't forgive everyone. That's a little strange teaching to a lot of people, but there are conditions for his forgiveness. And so God could not just overlook my sin. My sin had to be paid. It was a debt to be paid. And while God is a God of forgiveness, and he's a God of grace, and he's a God of mercy and love, and he cares deeply about me. He wants me to be in his presence for eternity. While all of those good things can be said about God and his love and grace and mercy, on the other hand, God is a just God, and justice must be requited. God is a holy God, and we have offended his holiness. We have tarnished the purity that Almighty God represents. 
God is a righteous God, meaning he always does right. And he wants to treat us in the right way. But to be right with us would require punishment of our sin or payment of the debt. So here God is, if you will, in a dilemma. He is a holy, just, and righteous God. On the other hand, he is a loving and merciful God, a God of grace. And so how does he reconcile that? Because he's bound by his own laws. He must keep his laws. He must punish sin as the judge of the universe. And since he's bound by his laws, he cannot overlook sin. Here's, here's something to think about. Stop with me and think real hard about this. If God could have overlooked sin, then the cross would have been unnecessary. If God could just cancel the sin debt and just arbitrarily say, you're forgiven, then there was no reason for Calvary. Why did Jesus, why was it required that Jesus Christ come to the earth and go through that horrendous suffering and death that he did for us? It was because a just God had to punish sin. He had to collect the debt or he would have violated his own holiness, righteousness, and character. So the gospel is such a wonderful thing. It's good news because it's good news to all of us because we're all sinners. We all have the problem. We have all been bitten by the, the serpent. We have all come under the curse, if you will. And Almighty God, in his love, reconciled all this. He worked all of this out. And so he sent his son. And Jesus went to the cross he took our sins upon himself, the Bible says, and he provided forgiveness for us. Isaiah chapter 53 is one of my very favorites. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or the punishment of our sins was upon him, and with his stripes, we are healed. Forgiveness is possible because of what Jesus did. God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. Isn't that wonderful today, church? If you don't have an, a, a, a gram of shout in you, that ought to bring a shout to your heart. That God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. Here's another one. Five words from the book of John, or Romans, pardon me, chapter 5 and verse 8. Romans 5 and 8, five words summarize the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Isn't that good? My goodness, that tastes good when I say it. Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel. He became my substitute God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven me. And at the, at the cross, my, the Lord Jesus Christ modeled forgiveness for us under the most extreme circumstances that humans could devise. And I see him hanging there, bearing the weight of the sins of the world. And as he does, he prays. What does he pray? Father, Forgive them. Now, he didn't forgive us that. He wasn't saying that he forgave us there. He is praying that the Father will forgive you, us because God, 
for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. He wasn't forgiving everybody at that point. He was praying for forgiveness for them. Here's what he was saying. I am paying their debt. I am lifting their load. I am providing forgiveness by grace. I'm going to bear the whole punishment for their sins in order that God's justice is satisfied, his holiness is retained, his integrity is not sacrificed. I'm going to do all that, and then by grace, I'm going to provide the road to forgiveness. I want you to notice that forgiveness is not automatic. There are some people say, oh, I'm going to heaven. Jesus died for the sins of the world. It is true that Jesus died for the sins of the world, but there are conditions about it. There are several conditions, in fact. One of them is that you repent of your sin. Repent means you change your mind about your sin. You see, you can't come to Jesus and, and, and hang on to your sin intentionally, willfully, with no intention whatever of ever changing your lifestyle. I just believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. That's that easy believism that is absolutely killing us in Christianity today in America. I mean, we've got all kinds of people who will swear on their deathbed that they're saved people, and there's never been one ounce of repentance shown or demonstrated in their life about anything. No, over in the book of Luke, chapter 17, he says, you go to people, and if they repent, then you forgive them. And he requires repentance from us. The Bible says over and over, two or three different times in the book of Luke, that, uh, with that if we don't repent, that we will perish. So that's a condition. And the other condition, of course, is faith. We must believe. We must trust by believing. We don't mean believing that Jesus died on a cross. We mean that we trust ourselves. We trust the fact that he died on the cross for our salvation. And so we put all of our confidence and dependence and faith and confidence in what Jesus Christ did for us there at the cross. No, forgiveness is not automatic. Just because Christ died doesn't mean that everybody's forgiven. And then I want you to notice something else about forgiveness. Forgiveness comes at a high cost. Forgiveness is not cheap. Forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness cost God Almighty, His Son. And forgiveness cost His Son his life, in fact, every drop of his blood. No, our forgiveness is arguably the most expensive thing on this planet in that it required the blood of Almighty God for sin to be forgiven. No, it was not cheap. Those hours of anguish on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I having to pay this price? And he suffered as no man has ever suffered because he not only suffered physically, but he suffered emotionally and spiritually as he took all the filth and garbage and sin and evil of all of time, heaped it upon his shoulders and bore it for the remission of our sin. Don't take lightly the fact that we can be forgiven and that forgiveness is free. It is free, but it's not cheap. And it was not easy, and it's not automatic. The gospel, though, once I understand that, it meets the deepest need of my heart. You see, God 
stamped me with his image. And his image means that I have a conscience. It means that I intuitively, automatically know what is right from wrong. It means that I don't have to go to school or Sunday school. I don't have to come to a church. I don't even have to read the Bible to know right from wrong, what is moral and what is not moral. Even the Bible says the heathen who has no knowledge of God knows in his heart that what is right and what is wrong. And so God put that into us intuitively. It's as much a part of us as our DNA, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of right and the knowledge. We know when we have sinned, the knowledge of right and the knowledge of wrong. And so the gospel comes along and meets my need. It lifts that burden that I feel. It cancels that debt. It clears my conscience. It gives me freedom again in my spirit after experiencing that forgiveness. It assures me of the love of God, that God loves me unconditionally. There's nothing I can do that would make God love me more, and there's nothing I could do that would make him love me less. God loves me. It is his nature to love me. Here's what forgiveness means in a couple, three verses. May I read them for you? The book of Jeremiah in chapter number 31 and verse number 34. Jeremiah 31 and 34, now at the end of the verse, the Lord said there, from the least of them to the greatest of them, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Oh, how I love that verse. The Lord says, I won't even remember your sin after you've come to the cross and you've been saved. You know, people read that, and I've had people say to, ask me about that. Well, what he's really saying is I won't bring it up to you again. I'm not going to throw it up in your face again. Now, has God forgotten it? No, God doesn't forget. God knows everything. God is omniscient, isn't he? There's nothing that God doesn't know. God knows that I sinned, and he knows what that sin is, and he hadn't forgotten that. He didn't say that. He said, I will remember it no more. We see the will. We see the choice there. God chooses to not remember it. He said, I'm going to intentionally put it aside, and I am going to forgive it, and I will choose to never bring it up again. I'm not going to throw it up in your face that you've sinned. Secondly, I go to the book of Micah, chapter 7, one of the minor prophets that we recently studied here on Wednesday night, and there's wonderful hope here, Micah chapter 7 and verse 18, and the Bible says, who is a God like unto thee? Obviously, there are no gods like him. There are no gods other than him, in fact. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, of his people. He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. Isn't that great? Underline that in your Bible. I'm continually saying, isn't that great? But it's just great. <laughs> what other word do I use? God delights in mercy. Boy, how unlike us, how unlike the world that God delights in mercy. And then in verse 19, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. 
He will subdue our iniquities, and he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I read that the deepest part of the ocean is about seven miles deep, 35,000 deep, somewhere off of the coast of the Mariana Islands, seven miles of water as you go straight up and down. And God said, I put your sins 7,000 feet deep, I guess. That might be where our sins are. I like what old country boy said, and he put a no fishing sign over him. He doesn't want you dredging them up, does he? He said, I will remember your sins no more, and I will cast them into the depths of the sea. He's not going to put them on Facebook like some people do. He is going to bury them in the sea, and they are gone forever, which means he's not going to tell anybody else about them either. He's not going to go around and say, did you hear about Jim? Let me tell you about him. And we like to spread a little something that doesn't enhance his character. No, God said, no. I buried him in the deepest part of the ocean. I have chosen to not think about them ever again. Now, I'm giving you what it means to forgive people. What it means is you don't bring it up to them again. It means you don't tell anybody else about it. And it means one other thing. And let me show you that. And it's over in the book of Psalm 103. Will you turn to the Psalms? 103. Psalm 103 and uh, verse 10. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, thank God, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. As the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. And then I love this one, as far as the east is from the west. As far as the east is from the west. You know, that's very important. If you start going east, you can go east the rest of your life and in all through eternity, and you will never go west. If you go west, you will never go east unless you change. Now, if he had said north from south, you can go north, and then you hit the south. You go north far enough, and then you start going south again. So he didn't say, I removed your sins as far as the north is from the south. He said, I removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. Hey, that's pretty good too. I would have gotten three amens from somebody about that. I thought that's pretty cool. He didn't say north from south. He said east from west, didn't he? In other words, I removed them to infinity. I'm never going to remember your sins again. And so he says, I'm not dwelling on them. I've taken them so far away. God says, I'm not dwelling on your sins. Don't think of God sitting up there and looking at your record and wrinkling his brow. He says, I'll never bring your sin up to you again. That's what it means to be forgiven. And I will not tell anybody else about your sins, and I'll not dwell on it myself. We're going to go forward. You're forgiven. Somebody said it like this. Stop remembering what God has forgotten. Stop remembering what God has forgotten. So, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 God, for Christ's sake, 
hath forgiven us. But there's a second name there for Christian, and is forgiving. A Christian is not only forgiven, a Christian is forgiving. Our jubilee year, our 50th year, don't you think it'd be a wonderful, wonderful thing if we would resolve in our hearts to just clear every debt that we have and start the year without any bitterness and wrath and anger and hatred and ill feeling toward anybody on the planet? Cancel all the debts that we think people owe us. Forgive everybody that we have held something in our hearts against. Just clear the books and start the 50th year. You see, in the Bible, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, that's what they did. All the debts were forgiven. You remember me telling you that last week? All the debts were forgiven. Well, that was talking primarily about financial debts, mortgages and debts owed like that. But now, from the standpoint of the spiritual, the Jubilee year ought to be a time when we forgive all the debts. We cancel all them. We lift the loads of people who have sinned against us and wronged us, and we put it under the blood of Christ, and we go on with our life. Question, whose debt do you need to cancel? As you sit here today, who do you have bad feelings against? Who are you better at? Who are you holding a grudge with? Wouldn't it be a wonderful year if you could just get rid of all that garbage and just go on and lighten the load, lift the load, cancel all the debts that you think that people owe, owe to you? The people who have wronged you, do you think you might find it in your heart to, do, to go back to that forgiveness model that God has forgiven you because of Christ and you say, well, you know what, I need to forgive people because... I have been forgiven. Because I'm forgiven, I must forgive. C.S. Lewis, the great writer, said this, quote, to be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Man, how powerful. Let me say it again. To be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. I read not long ago these words in an article I was reading. Quote, churches are riddled with holes out of which God's power is leaking. And it leaks because of people's bitterness, resentments, and anger, both with God and with other people. And then the article went on, and I liked the way it put it. It talked about the prison of debt, of guilt. It likened guilt to a prison. Now, we feel guilt because we have the knowledge we've wronged somebody else. If I've done you wrong, my conscience records that. And I know in my conscience that I have wronged you, and I feel guilty about it. Guilt is what I've done to someone else. And the author said, that's people who are guilt-ridden are imprisoned. They can't get out of that prison. They, they escape it for a few minutes. They think about something else. And then the knowledge, the remembrance that they have done wrong to somebody comes back, and they're back in the prison. 
Their conscience records it. It, it binds them. And then he said, there is not only the prison of guilt, but there's the poison of bitterness. The poison of bitterness. Someone has wronged me, and I am bitter about it, and it poisons my entire being. What did our Lord teach us to pray in his model prayer that he taught us to pray every day? Forgive us our debts as we forgive what? Those who are indebted to us. Lord, we pray for your forgiveness, but we also understand that receiving your gift of forgiveness, I must in turn forgive other people. And my, the power of that poison and that guilt to just ruin life for us. Now, I'm telling you something, folks. I'm telling you something that can make this a better life, can make this a better year, can make everything look different. It's like going out there right now, and if the clouds were all to part and the sun would be brightly shining, what a difference. And, and, and that's a metaphor of how life can be when we get rid of the guilt and the bitterness that plagues us and imprisons us and poisons us. Here's what I finally learned one day some years ago as a Christian who had been struggling trying to learn these things and learn about life. It occurred to me one day that I would never be filled with the Spirit. There was no hope of me ever being a Spirit-filled Christian as long as resentment and bitterness was present in my life. God's Spirit can't fill me if I'm partially filled with something else. To be filled, I have to be first emptied. And if I want to be filled with the Spirit of God, I have absolutely got to deal with this bitterness, guilt, resentment, anger, clamor, wrath stuff that absolutely will take over. And we're living in a culture now that encourages us to be better. But oh, the power of forgiveness. I hope you're listening to me. I really will help you today if you'll listen to this and, and take this to heart. The power of forgiveness. You see, here's the power of forgiveness. When we forgive, two people get set free. The one that is being forgiven and the one who does the forgiving. Two of us clear our systems of the poison and our prisons of the guilt, and we're free, free as a bird, free in Christ. That's what the Bible teaches as one of the great benefits of the Christian life. If you're a thinking person, you have to be concerned about our nation. I've never seen such bitterness, such hatred. I've never seen anything like it. It's not the country that I have known now for my life. It's not the country I grew up in as a boy. I was listening to an early morning talk show the other morning, and they were talking about it in, uh, on the local, local show. And they were talking about, can our country survive with the spirit that's in this country right now? It has never, ever been so divided except one time, and that was just prior to the Civil War. 
Can, will America even be able to survive the hatred? I read a book a number of years ago by a man whose name was Charles Sykes back in the 90s. He wrote the book. It's called A Nation of Victims. Oh, what a great book. It's a secular book. It's not a Christian book, but Charles Sykes was a very insightful gentleman. He argues that victimization has taken over our culture. He calls it a culture of victimization, a nation of victims. And he says, it is to blame for so much of the bitterness and the hatred between entire classes of people. And today you see news reports, you see them, and, and the media is, in my opinion, the ones who fan this more than anybody. But, but the left, politically, especially in this country, fans it too. And they create this identity politics and this class hatred, the wealthy versus the poor and the poor against the wealthy. And then you have the racial divide. And we've got, you know, we've got blacks and we've got Hispanics and we've got Native Americans and we've got white people and we've got this and we're all divided up. We've got Asians and and. There's the races themselves clash. We're now even having division because of our sexes. The gender stuff, turning men against women and women against men. And I, I, I have felt some of that. I have received texts and emails. I mean, some of these women hate all men. I want to say... I ain't done anything to you. What are you on such a tear for? Uh, I, I just had the unfortunate experience of being born male. I have no question, by the way, about that either. <laughs> and then we have the, uh, the, the, the whole idea of the, the gender thing. So the homosexuals and the trans people, and my soul, it never stops. It never stops. Age, we got the young against the old. Divided in every possible way that you can possibly slice a culture. That's where we are. And these people tell these different classifications of people, you're a victim. You've been injured. You've been harmed. You've been oppressed because of your race, because of your sex, because of your economic status, because of your gender, because of your sexual preference. You hear that stuff every time you turn on the television now, you're hearing that stuff. Now listen, analyze that with me. I want you to think about it. By classifying people, in, entire groups of people as victims, we really fan the flame of division. And the man said in the book, we have become a nation of bitter, neurotic people. A nation of bitter, neurotic people. And sadly, we don't have any way to deal with it. How do you deal with it? Carl Menninger founded the Menninger Clinic. It is known as the number one place, or it used to be at least, the number one place in America for mental and emotional issues. It was in Topeka, Kansas. I've known people who went there. And Menninger wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin, and he said, in days gone by, people talked about sin. Now listen to what he says. He's a wise man. 
They talked about the possibility of forgiveness. But today, sin is passe. Preachers are silent about sin, and sin has been relabeled. We no longer talk about sin. We talk about crime, and that's a legal issue. It can't be forgiven. If you commit a crime, you have to be punished. And then we relabel sin sickness. And if you're sick, you need to be healed or at least excused. You can't help it, but you don't need to be forgiven. And Menninger comes back and joins my theme for the message. Guilt and bitterness imprison millions. It's poisoned their minds, their emotions. Even it affects their bodies. Relationships are broken. We need in America to rediscover sin. Then when people acknowledge that the problem is sin, forgiveness is possible. That's a psychologist talking. And so today... I want to encourage you to start your year, to start your year and forgive, clean the slate, cancel the debts that you think people owe to you. A few weeks ago, there was a man named Stephen Chow. He's a young man from an affluent family, wealthy, traveled the world. Stephen Chow was like an adventurer only was a devout Christian. He was a missionary. He just went on his own. There's an island off the coast of India, 200 miles from India, and it's inhabited by a tribe of people. There's never been any contact with those people from civilization. The World Health Organization said nobody ought to go there because you'll carry your germs, your antibodies, and so on, and, and all those people might get sick and die because their immune systems are not able to to handle that. But Stephen Chow said, I'm healthy. I'm at the peak of my health. He's 29 years old, something like that. And he paid his own way. He went there. He flew to a nearby island. He got another group of people to tow him. He was in a kayak by himself with nothing but his Bible and a few supplies. And within a mile of that island, when it became dangerous, he said to them, you go back. And he rowed himself into shore. And they watched from a couple of miles away on a larger vessel. And the moment he hit that beach, as people came out of the woods, rained down their arrows upon him, he fell on the sand. They watched him drag his lifeless body back into the woods, the jungle. He thought he would take the gospel to them. He had compassion on them. He loved them. Now, his parents have a news conference. We'll never get to see our boy again. We can't even bury his body. Oh, how our heart longs to be with him. But Stephen died doing what he believed in. And we forgive the people who killed him. They know not what they do. That's a Christian. Wow. Forgiven and forgiving. And down in Charleston a couple of years ago, there was a mad racist, Dylan Roof. And he sat in a prayer meeting 
with nine other people for over an hour. Can you imagine? And then pulled out his gun and killed everybody in the room. Boy, that could have sparked a race war. That could have been behind problems that would rip the whole country apart. Do you know what the dear Christian people in that church said? They issued a statement. We forgive him. The high cost is not automatic, but it's the most powerful thing on the earth. We forgive Delano even though he ruined our lives. A man was caught stealing from his company. He had stolen several hundred dollars. The boss called him in and said, are you guilty? He said, yes, I am. Hung his head, teared up. The boss said to him, Let me ask you a question. If I were to forgive you, could I trust you to never steal another penny from me again? And the man said, oh, yes, yes, yes. And he's sobbing. Oh, I can't believe you would even consider doing that for me, sir. And the boss got up from behind his desk, walked around and said, let me tell you why I'm doing this. When I was about your age, I did the same thing you've done. I stole from my employer. He was a Christian man. He came to me and said, if I give you another chance, will you ever steal from me again? And I said, no, sir. And he forgave me. And I've never stolen a penny. I'm going to do for you what my boss did for me. He forgave me, and now I forgive you. Search your heart. It's a new year, and I want you to enjoy the freedom of forgiveness. Our heads are bowed. Will you stand with me to your feet, please?